Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Maybe you heard about the lonely lady who wanted a talking parrot. Going to the pet store, she asked if there was already a bird there who was speaking. Yes, the pet store owner said, this bird has a vocabulary of about a thousand words and 50 phrases guaranteed to fit almost any occasion. Well, the deal was made and the parrot was brought home in a cage. But the next day, the purchaser went back and said the parrot had yet to say a word. That's to be expected, said the pet shop owner. Try giving the bird a few of the toys here in the shop for her to use. It just needs that to fill at home. Well, toys were purchased and another day went by. The parrot's owner returned and said, there's still been no talking. I see, said the pet owner. Perhaps if you got a bird bath, the parrot would start to talk while using it. A bird bath was purchased and yet another day went by. The next day, the owner was back with the same complaint. This time, the pet, the pet shop owner mentioned that sometimes the bird had been praising its training by being allowed to ring a little bell. So the parrot's owner bought the bell reluctantly. The following day, the owner was there waiting as the store opened. Still no luck, asked the store owner. No, nothing, said the bird's owner. Okay, all you have to do is get a mirror. And then the bird will think that it has a companion. And finally, the sale of the mirror was agreed upon. Well, the next day, the pet shop owner opened the store and found the troublesome customer had already returned. This time, she brought the parrot. Only it was dead. What happened, asked the pet shop owner. Did the bird ever talk? She said, yeah, it was weird. Right before he died, he said, what's the matter? Don't they sell food at that pet store anymore? Sometimes we need to be reminded about what's the most important thing. And that includes whether you're building a temple or building a life. Look at verse 1 with me. Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, that is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. And the house which King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits in its length, and 20 cubits in its width, and its height was 30 cubits. The porch in front of the main room of the house was 20 cubits in length, corresponding to the width of the house, and its width along the front of the house was 10 cubits. Also for the house, he had made windows with artistic frames. Against the wall of the house, he built stories encompassing the walls of the house around both the main room and the inner sanctuary. So he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits wide, the middle was six cubits, and the third was seven cubits wide. For on the outside he made offsets in the wall of the house all around so that the beams would not be inserted into the walls of the house. I suspect that architects and building contractors could really enjoy chapter 6. It's full of dimensions and materials and fixtures and decorations all the stock and trade of such people. Many of us, however, feel quite distant from the text. We are among the klutzes when it comes to the least bit of any such activity. We break out in hives if someone should suggest we install a ceiling fan or remodel a bathroom. And so our lack of skill determines our lack of interest in such affairs. 
But regardless of our ineptitude, even we can sense the importance of what we're about to hear from the way that this chapter begins. It says, Now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign in Israel, in the month of Ziv, that is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. The reference point that we are to understand is what follows in this chapter is the exodus from Egypt in the days of Moses. For that is when the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. That was when the nation of Israel was born. And the story is told in the book of Exodus. By mighty acts of judgment against his Egyptian oppressors, God rescued his suffering people from cruel bondage. The implication of verse 1 is what we're about to hear is the most important thing since that exodus. This is the only event in the Bible that is dated in the terms of the number of years from the time of exodus. The exodus was the beginning of something. We are about to hear the end, or we could say the culmination of that great act of redemption. Much had happened in the centuries since Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. There had been the conquest in the land in the days of Joshua, the repeated deliverances from enemies through the years of the judges, and the reigns of both King Saul and David, but it had all been leading up to this. As important as this verse is for biblical chronology, it is even more important for biblical theology. What Solomon did in building a house for God is directly connected to what God did in bringing his people out of Egypt. First Kings is part of the ongoing history of the one true people of God. As he tells the story of Solomon's temple, the biblical writer looks back to the historic day when the people were released from their bondage by the mighty grace of God. This temple was part of God's promise. Now we've already seen how God promised David that his son would build a temple. But the promise of God's dwelling place went all the way back into the days of Moses. When Moses sang his victory song on the shores of the Red Sea, celebrating God's triumph over the horses and riders of Egypt, he prophesied then that one day God was going to dwell with his people. This is Exodus 15:17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The promise of Moses was fulfilled on the mountain of Zion, where Solomon built a sanctuary for the worship of God. Solomon's temple was to serve as a dwelling place for God, which is why the structure is repeatedly called a house. A house is a place where someone lives. So this new house was to be the dwelling place of God. It was the one place on earth that God chose to receive his people's worship and make his presence manifest. There has never been in the history of the world a more significant building than this house. The world's greatest skyscrapers, the most beautiful architecture with the grandest designs, pale into insignificance 
besides this building that we're about to see. Now God makes a similar promise to us today. The most basic promise of his everlasting covenant is that he would come to us and be our God. When God comes to dwell with us, when he comes into our lives by the powerful presence of his Holy Spirit, then we have the best of all blessings, which is God himself living within us. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him, and make his home in him. This is the promise of Jesus Christ for anyone who loves him and believes the gospel, namely, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come and make their home in your life. We are now given the dimensions of the temple in rather archaic terms. A cubit is the length of a man's arm from elbow to fingertip, or we would say about 18 inches. So the temple was approximately 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. It had the same basic proportions as the tabernacle that Moses built in the wilderness, but it was twice as long in every dimension, and therefore it was quadrupled in its size. Roughly speaking, the temple was about the size of a church sanctuary that could sit about 250 people. So to give you an idea, this room sets 100 people. So think of the temple as being two and a half times bigger than the room you're sitting in. But proportionally, it was narrow and tall, being about the height of a four-story building. Now Solomon's temple was not very large or impressive by today's standards. But remember that most buildings were much smaller in biblical times. Thus, the temple would have been bigger than any other building in Jerusalem except perhaps the royal palace once that was completed. Furthermore, it was perched at the highest point of a mountain, and so it had a commanding aspect. Still considered from the standpoint of its size, the Temple of Solomon was never in the running to be regarded as one of the wonders of the world. Other, other monuments were bigger or taller or more ornate. But, the building itself was never intended to be the most important thing about the temple. What was meant to be really impressive was the God who lived there. The temple was for His glory, not for the people who built it. Verse 7, please. The house, while it was being built, was built of stone, finished at the quarry, and neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool was heard in the house while it was being built. The doorway for the lowest side chamber was on the right side of the house, and they would go up by a winding staircase to the middle story and from the middle to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he covered the house with beams and, plank and planks of cedar. He also built the stories against the whole house, each five cubits high, and they were attached to the house with timbers of cedar. Now much of what was being built with Solomon's temple would be sound relatively familiar to anyone who has been around the building of a house. But there is one detail here that is astonishing. 
Visit a building site and you will quickly discover that construction always makes a tremendous amount of noise. Yet when Solomon built this house, we are told that the stones were prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool was heard in the house while it was being built. At the end of chapter 5, we learned how Solomon had sent more than a 100,000 workmen into the hills to get the stone needed for the temple and then haul it up to Jerusalem. These men skillfully shaped each stone with their tools, making sure that it was just the right size to fit into the temple. So when it came to finally erect the temple, they noiselessly set each stone into its proper place. So this was no ordinary building site. Care was taken to take the usual commotion of iron tools far away. You, you can imagine considerable skill would have to be required to perfectly prepare those stones at the quarry so that no further shaping at all was needed at the location. Josephus says it was so perfectly crafted that you could not even put a penknife between the stones. One other thing. I think the relative silence of the building would also have enhanced the sense of order and dignity of the building. As it says in one of the Proverbs of Solomon, prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, then build your house. But this was more than an example of just good planning. It was also a witness to the holiness of God Almighty. This was the building site for God's holy temple. The place where Habakkuk would later say, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Thus it was appropriate for Solomon's workmen to build this new house with quiet and holy reverence. They were doing a holy work for a holy God. Did you know that God is doing the exact same thing with us this morning? The preparation of these stones also remind us of the work that God is doing in our own spiritual lives. The Bible says that when we came to Christ, we became like living stones that God is building up as into a spiritual house. That tells us that God is not finished with us yet. All through life, His Spirit is shaping us in the quarry of sanctification, using things like suffering and temptation to chip away everything in our lives that are still unholy. He uses our quiet time of prayer with the reading and meditation of Scripture to slowly construct our character. And as we confess our sins and grow in godliness, God is getting ready to get us to be the perfect fit for our everlasting home. All of the cutting and carving, all of the chipping and grinding, was done in the course, and when the massive stones arrived at the temple site, they fit together perfectly. What an amazing sight it must have been to watch that temple go up silently like that. We, too, 
are living stones, my friends. That means this world is the quarry. It's the place where we are chipped and cut and polished and ground so that when we get to heaven, the clamor will cease and the work will finally be complete. Look at verse 11 with me. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, As for this house which you are building, if you walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will fulfill my word with you which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not abandon my people Israel. Well, these verses are obviously different than the surrounding text. Before and after, we have reports of various aspects of temple construction, but here we get a revelation from God given to Solomon that contains both a word of promise and admonition. Like our parrot story, this is the most important thing God wanted him to get. Now, some critical scholars have even argued that these places, these verses are oddly out of place. They point out that if we were to skip from verse 10 to verses 14 or 15, we could read straight through the account without any interruption of thought. They say verses 11 through 13 are so different in style and content that they must have been added later by some other editor. Now, in response, it could be pointed out that these verses come from a natural division in the biblical text between the exterior and the interior of the temple. But, maybe it's better to admit that this is just an interruption, while at the same time insisting that God has the right to speak to us anytime he wants to. Now, verse 11 says that the word of the Lord came to Solomon. So that was a divine interruption. I don't know about you, but God seems like he's like that, by the way. He's always intruding in on our agenda, getting rid of our plans so that his will may be done. Now, in this particular case, God's main concern was Solomon's heart. Whereas we tend to focus on the way things appear on the outside, God always looks at the heart. He wants us to consider what is going on on the inside of us. So this interruption, as intrusive as it may have been, was crucial for Solomon's spiritual health. Now God did not tell Solomon to stop what he was doing. He did not disapprove of Solomon's temple, but he wanted to make sure that as he undertook that project, that he did not lose sight of what should have been his top priority. So God interrupted Solomon to remind him to do everything in obedience to the will of God. He was saying, Solomon, this is what really matters to me. And it's simple obedience. To me, Solomon, what is in your heart is far more important to me than what you do with your hands. So even while the construction was going on, God called Solomon back to a very important reality. In the midst of the building project, he says, 
walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep my commandments, and then I will perform my word. In other words, the Lord was saying, I'm not so concerned about building a building as I am about building you. This is an important reality check for everyone, not just King Solomon. We are often tempted to think that what really matters to God is what we do. And of course, what we do does matter. But what matters the most is who we are and keeping the obedience of a heart that is surrendered to the Lord. My dear friends, don't ever mistake activity and ministry for what is really happening spiritually, internally. You can be buzzing around doing all kinds of things for God, but that does not necessarily mean that you are doing well. So I ask us all this morning, how are we in the Lord really doing? That's the issue. That's always the issue. Why the interruption, however? I suggest the analogy that interruptions sometimes signal priorities. Think of it this way. On a given evening in an emergency room, the county hospital may be populated with a four-year-old girl who fell out of her top bunk and broke her arm. There may be a carpenter whose thumb got too close to the blade of his table saw. And there may be a woman suffering severe abdominal pain. But let the ambulance arrive with a man who's been in a highway pileup with massive lacerations and internal bleeding. And all that attention, effort, and activity is now going to zero in on him. While the other cases take second place. Why? A more extreme emergency rates a higher priority. Hence the interruption of the previous pattern of care. I propose that verses 11 through 13 function that way in 1 Kings chapter 6. It's all very well to describe the temple under construction. But what is far more crucial and important to God that preempts this description is that there must be personal obedience to God's commandments if Israel is to enjoy all that that temple is going to signify. So how did Solomon do? As Jonathan said this morning, tragically, the king is going to fail to keep God's covenant. We've already seen some early warning signs that Solomon's heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. And when we finally get to chapter 11, we will see that for all of his wisdom, he did not end his reign nearly as well as he began it. Solomon did not keep all the if commands that would then make all the then promises come true. He did not walk in the rules and statutes that forbade the king to marry many wives to trust in horses and chariots for national security, or to acquire excessive gold and silver for his personal use. Nor did he obey God's commandments about refusing to worship foreign idols. And as a result of Solomon's unfaithfulness, the people of Israel did not receive the full blessing that would have, kept, would have been theirs if the king had kept God's covenant. 
Solomon's throne did not last forever. And when he dies, Israel is going to become a divided kingdom. And although God did live with his people for a time, eventually even his glory is going to depart from the temple. The same if-then statements also explain the gospel of our salvation. As we study the Old Testament, we look in vain for the one perfect king who can keep perfectly the covenant of God. Now, David and Solomon are actually two of Israel's best kings, but they both had severe and fatal flaws. David was a murderer and adulterer, and Solomon married many wives and worshipped idols. Most of the other kings were even worse. And even the best of them fell far short of the perfect obedience to the law of God. Israel's king did not walk in God's statutes, obey God's rules, and keep God's commandments. They failed at the if commands, as we have failed and do fail. And they thus forfeited all the then promises. The kings of Israel did not secure an everlasting dynasty for David or enjoy the permanent living presence of God in their community. Yet, all these promises did come true. And God is with his people today by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. The promises finally came through in Jesus Christ, the son of David and the greater than Solomon, From the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus walked in God's statutes, fulfilling perfectly the whole law of God. He perfectly obeyed God's rules by always doing the Father's will. He kept all of God's commandments, loving his Father with all of his heart and loving his neighbors all the way to the cross where he died for our sins. Jesus kept all the if commands of the law that then opened up all the then promises for you and I this morning. Solomon's failure thus points us to the faithfulness of Christ. Jesus is able to make all the great promises he makes because he met every condition for our salvation. The law has been kept, the debt has been paid, and now God can be with us forever. That should be a great encouragement to us this morning. Because there are times when every believer is tempted to doubt the presence of God. So what should we do when those times start and arise and threaten to overwhelm us? The one thing we should not do is try to work harder for God. Thinking if we just did a little bit more for Him, him, then we would have the blessing of His presence in our lives. Listen very carefully here. If having the living presence of God depended upon our own ability to keep all the if commands of the law, then God would have left us a long time ago. Our only assurance lies in the obedience of Christ as the perfect king and the perfect law keeper. Because he was faithful, we are forgiven. 
And even when we fail to keep God's commandments, we are not forsaken. God does not say to us us this morning, if you obey, then I will accept you. But rather, because Jesus has obeyed, I therefore will accept you. Jesus lived for us the perfect life, died the forgiving death, and rose for us from the grave with resurrection power. Whatever doubts we may have about ourselves this morning, there is no need to doubt what Jesus has done on the cross or promised in the gospel. The living presence of his Holy Spirit will be with all those who trust in him. This is what the house that Solomon built was really all about. It was about the Lord not forsaking the people of Israel, but dwelling among them even in their failures. This was his promise to Solomon, which had been spoken to his father David. In other words, implicit in the promise that a son of David will build a house for my name is the promise in verse 13 that the Lord would dwell among his people as they live under this king. We need to pause and appreciate the wonder of that promise. The Bible teaches us that at the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, that the man God created enjoyed the presence of the Lord. But after disobeying him, the man and his wife were driven out from the presence of the Lord and away from the garden. Since that day, the alienation of men and women from God is and has been and will always be the fundamental problem of the human condition. This is why every effort to put things right among humans and in this world is going to fail in one way or the other. Every success is only partial and temporary. We ourselves cannot find our way back to God even if we wanted to. And by the way, lest He draws us, we wouldn't even want to do that. Notice that word dwell in verse 13. The Hebrew could be translated, I will tabernacle among the children of Israel. With that thought, how dead on is John's description of the coming Jesus when he said, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So to finish up today, like those stones in that temple, we are being shaped down here for our everlasting home. Billy Graham tells this story. He said, have a friend who during the Depression lost his job, a fortune, a wife, and a home. But he tenaciously held to his faith, which was the only thing that he had left. One day he stopped to watch some men doing stonework on a huge church. One of them was chiseling a small triangular piece of stone. What are you doing with that? asked my friend. The workman said, see that little opening way up there near the spire? Well, I'm shaping it down here so it'll fit in up there. Billy Graham said, tears filled the eyes of my friend as he walked away, or seeing that God had spoken through the workman to explain the ordeal through which he was passing. I'm shaping that down here so that you're going to fit in up there. Let us pray. Father, so thankful that you called us, you saved us. Every part of salvation is completely dependent upon you. 
as uh, Billy Sunday said, we do the sinning and you do the saving. That's really what it is, Lord. I pray, Father, that those of us in here who are saved, that that would just encourage us to know that there is nothing we can do to make you love us anymore and nothing that we could do to make you love us any left. You love us with a perfect love. And if anyone here does not know you, Lord, or as it goes out on the Internet, I pray you would pierce their heart. Show them, oh God, their need for a Savior and draw them to yourself. We ask in your name. Amen.